get the introduction in this week. It's just the joys of live streaming. I tried Twitch live streaming one. That that was interesting. Yeah, there you go. And we're live. Hey, welcome. Scale Up Heroes. This is episode 12. This is where we bring the best minds with the best real life experiences when it comes to scaling up businesses. These are the heroes that took on the difficult odds. These today with us are gentlemen who happen to be living to tell the tale. I'm your host, Randy Cantrell. To all of our viewers, we want to invite you to visit our website, scaleupacademy.io. Today, we're discussing scaling up marketing. And we welcome our viewers and our guests, our panelists to the show. I'm going to introduce today's moderator, Hugo Macedo. And uh, Hugo, I'm going to let you introduce yourself and bring in the rest of the gentlemen. Thanks for being here, guys. Thank you, Randy. Uh, so my name is Hugo. I'm VP of Marketing at Embabel. Uh, I've been uh, with Embabel for uh, four years now uh, and uh, has had uh, marketing for a year now. Um, so... And uh, before I did other startups, also corporates, uh, marketing jobs, and so on. And uh, and Babel is is um, bringing uh, a cross language understanding uh, with um, companies going global. Um, but um, I would like to to know more about our panelists today. So uh, I'll uh, pass on to uh, Alex uh, from Finiata. Um, can you introduce yourself and uh, what uh, your company does? Yeah, so my name is Alex Beresford. Um, I'm currently Chief Marketing Officer at Finiata, which is based in Germany. Uh, um, Finiata was founded in 2016. We've raised 18 million in Series A in January this year. Um, founder is Sebastian Diemer, who comes from uh, Credit Tech, so we have a serial founder on board. Um, Previously, I was at PayPal doing uh, jobs in France and in uh, Eastern Europe and in Sub-Saharan Africa, growth, partnerships, a uh, bit of marketing and uh, sales. And um, our objective is basically fix working capital for the smallest companies out there. And uh, that's what I hopefully can bring some value around today. Good. Uh, who's next? Sansar, uh, time for time for him. Sure. Yeah. Hi, guys. Uh, good to be here. So my name's Sancha. I'm the director of marketing at Typeform. Uh, I've been at Typeform for just over two and a half years now, which is a lifetime in Typeform years or in startup years in general, I guess. So I joined when we were around just below 40 people and we're now nearly 200 people. So I joined just at the beginning of the kind of rapid um, growth stage of, of the company. I can't accredit it all to me, but, you know, I like to tell people it was because of me. Um, and um, yeah, for those who haven't heard of Typeform, Typeform is a way to collect uh, information and data from your employees, your customers, your users, your audience in a conversational way. So if you think of the traditional web form, that's very a very boring and un unengaging uh, experience. Typeform flips that on its head and makes it a much more interactive and engaging experience. So you get more and uh, better data. Yeah, looking forward to the conversation today. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Uh, Oliver, lead desk. Thanks, Hugo. Uh, thanks for, for having me. It's, it's, uh, it's a pleasure. Uh, so I'm Oliver Sippen. I work as head of marketing for Leaddesk. Uh, I've been at the company for about three years now, just, just short of three years. I joined Leaddesk right after their uh, A round, at which point the company decided to want to focus a little bit more professionally on, uh, on marketing. 
Before Greendesk, I worked in, in performance marketing in a digital agency. Uh, I've worked in sales as well, so I have a, a colored background in that way. Um, Greendesk is a Finnish technology company uh, founded in 2010. At the moment, we're around 70 people. Uh, we provide a cloud-based call center software that helps our clients sell more efficiently. Okay, thank you. So today we're talking about scaling marketing. And I mean, when you hear about scaling marketing, it seems that it's all about spending more money, scaling the budget. But it's, we know that it's much more than that. So I want to start the conversation thinking about, okay, the, the current, um, I mean, how do you see the evolution of your marketing channel? So where do you get the customers and the leads and the, all of that? How does change over time? Um, so we can talk a little bit more and, and about that also, how do you mix between consolidated channels versus uh, things you want to experiment, you want to uh, try different things. So who wants to go first? Uh, I can kick it off. Um, yeah, so one dimension that I think a lot of people don't speak about is you come into an organization that's already functioning, they've already got um, some stuff going on, there's some history and sort of onboarding yourself in, in all of this um, and then deciding like, okay, do you stop it all or do you continue on what you have is uh, one of the interesting things that you face right at the start of the job um, in terms of people coming into a startup. Then um, marketing channels grow oddly over time in Europe from my experience because especially if you're multi-geographical, it can vary extremely by country, sort of what works and what doesn't work. Like you can have a playbook that works in country A and you try and test this in country B and it just does not work at all. Um, so I think uh, experimentation, especially when you have a multi-geographical setup is super important. And like from my experience, anywhere from 50% of your budget can go to experimentation any given month um, wow. because you need to generate information. Like without information, you won't succeed. So I think I approach it from an information generation perspective. Uh, CPA is also important, uh, but you can't drive CPA, you can't drive growth without uh, information. Wow. Yeah, maybe, maybe I could quick. Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, so I completely agree with that. I think what's interesting about experimentation budget is it's actually very difficult to, to say that, you know, these activities that we're doing is counted as experimentation and these other activities are not because channels change so much on a almost day-to-day -day basis that you're actually constantly experimenting. If you think of paid search, for example, uh, Google is constantly rolling out new uh, features and functionality. Uh, you're constantly having to experiment with new ad copy. The ad copy that worked last week might not be working this week. So, um, you know, really everything is an experiment. I think what you need to keep an eye on is how much of your budget is bringing in customers at a, at a desired CPA and how much of it, you know, is blended into that and then, you know, actually increasing your CPA to a, to an unsatisfactory amount. And that's what you need to keep an eye on to understand if, if uh, you're experimenting, uh, experimenting uh, too much, let's say. So you need to make sure your, your portfolio is balanced between what you're pretty sure works and what uh, is brand new territory. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think all marketing in a way is, is experimenting because the, everything is changing so, so rapidly, constantly. So you kind of have to, to constantly experiment and see what works. Uh, and as was said, what worked last week doesn't necessarily work this week anymore. It's interesting that we, 
are all comfortable with this with this notion that marketing is all about experimentation. Everything is is changing, so you're always experimenting, measuring, adapting. Um, but does your the rest of the organization understands that that oh, marketing is experimentation? How do you balance this? Well, you have to deliver the quarterly goals, but you also have to think about the midterm growth and uh, what, what's the channels that's going to bring the new revenue revenue for the rest of the year. How do you balance that? And how do you explain people this? It's, that's a, sorry. Yeah. No, I was just going to say, I think that's a great question. And uh, I think the short answer is it's very difficult. Um, if you're talking to maybe a growth a product growth team, for example, who you know, really understands the importance of constant experimentation, constant failure, and constant learnings, then it's going to be easier to communicate. Uh, and maybe it's a bit more difficult for the wider, the wider org. The way I try and present everything that happens within marketing is as a portfolio. So if you think of every single initiative that we have, it's a, it's a balanced portfolio. And my job or my team's job is to make sure the portfolio is well-balanced between high risk and potential high reward and lower risk and you know um, potentially lower reward. So it's all about finding that balance. But if you present it as a portfolio, people understand that a little bit more. So when you say, I'm going to spend 100 grand on this activity, but the potential reward is big, but it could potentially fail you know, significantly, then it's all about uh, presenting it as a portfolio. And people understand that. You know, that's how it works in investment terms. You, you have high-risk investments. You have low-risk investments. The goal at the end is to, to have a balance. Um, for me, it feels nuanced. It feels like a couple of spectra involved. So the first spectra is we're all in effectively early stage companies with some form of venture or like venture capital behind it. This is already such a, a vastly different profile from the average. Um, so this helps. Then though, it's a second spectrum, which is fate versus decision. If you're surrounded by a culture, a team, a head of finance, a CEO, a founder that uh, do not believe in marketing and think that the best product sells itself, then it's a wholly different way versus a CEO that uh, um, is very passionate about the individual ad quality and the individual channel tests. Um, so I'm, I'm blessed with the, the, the second setup, um, but I can imagine this is not something homogenous. It's uh, very different by company. And you will only ever find out until you've just started working there for a while. Um, how much it is fate versus decision depends a lot on, on what my, my, my peer said as well. Like, how do you present this? How do you communicate? And how do you make sure the organization understands what's going on? Yeah, and I, I think at least at, at lead desk, exper experimentation is, is valued as long as you kind of bring in results as well. So as long as you can track and measure and show that that it's progressing, then you can kind of sell the experimentation with that. Uh, but you need to be able to back it up with numbers and you need to be able to back it up with results. I mean, selling experimentation, if, if the results are going downwards, is always a little bit more difficult. Yeah, I think we can all agree with that. What about oh. you, Oko? Oh, <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it's difficult. I mean, I think... Um, I think one of the, the, the things we need to do is continuously educate people around how marketing works, right? And how uh, these, the marketing we're doing right now in, in 2018 works. And, and, and it's, it's, um, it's curious because we, we think about a lot about how we measure, how we do things, but then we still have problems with attribution. And we, I like this idea of portfolio. I actually never use that. Actually, it's, it's a great idea because what people like to, to ask is, okay, what's your best channel? 
what if yeah. we double down on your channel and forget all the others? Come on, let me explain to you. It doesn't work like that, right? And you, you educate and how it works. So yeah. yeah, it's a challenge. I think it's a challenge. I, I think um, I have more a sales-driven organization um, and um, it's a lot of sales mentality. Um, so we have to do some, some, some education. Uh, I, I think it's part of, the, uh, of it and it's part of the job of me and, and the rest of the team. And, um, but when we, and, and to continually show uh, the results and what we are, we're delivering um, and explain how we see uh, the failure, things that are not working, what that uh, fits into the, the whole picture. Yeah. So I think that's it. Um, I want to change now for, uh, to, to marketing technology. So there's a lot of, you know, we all get this new marketing technology coming to us and promising a lot. Um, so the big question is, how is marketing technology uh, helping us to scale, right? Uh, how do you see that? And wh what's your perspective on that? Are you an early adopter and you go after the technology? Are you a skeptical? How do you choose what to, to try out? Mm, I'll, um, I'll go in first. So it's, it still feels very much like a, like a factory, sort of uh, input, throughput, output uh, is one way I've, I've had somebody describe it, or a, a sausage factory or a breakfast factory or whatever. Um, it's like what's coming in and what's coming out. And at the end of the day, in the middle, you have a bunch of humans involved. And uh, you don't know what works, so you experiment, you find what works, and then you find a way to scale it. And I find that MarTech comes in at the scaling piece where, okay, let's try and connect with 10 people on LinkedIn. Oh, that worked. Okay, now let's try and connect with 1,000 people on LinkedIn. Oh, I need software for this. Um, I find that it sort of, you have an experimentation lab in your um, factory, and then when you find out that this breakfast sausage is the best stuff out there, or this working capital product or whatever, then you go and look at, and what is the scalable solution for this? on top of, say, a foundation of um, ways of talking to your customers, ways of automating interactions. Um, I guess, though, this is also dependent on the segment you're trying to serve. So I'm not sure that answers the question, but to me, it feels like a, a factory and you involve it at the right time in the factory. Yeah. Yeah, and I think um, I, we're probably all early adopters of of MarTech to a certain extent. Uh, as marketers, we like to, to try marketing tools and, and technology. Uh, I think if you don't have a process around that, then it very quickly can go out of control. You know, you've got not only, it depends how big your team is obviously, but you know, you can very quickly have people using the same software and not realizing, and you know, you're not consolidating those plans, uh, creating a budget issue. You can see, uh, you know, somebody sharing their updates on one tool and another person sharing it on a different tool. And very quickly as you scale, that can become a, a problem. So I think in the early days when you're a few people, you know, process shouldn't be your shouldn't be your focus with Martech. You know, just try try things out and see what works. And as you scale up, you need to think about the boring stuff, right? You need to think about the process, the, the budgeting, the consolidating uh, your seats on the different plans and things like that. It's definitely what we've experienced. And it's really right now, we're about 20 people in marketing now. Um, and it's just now that we're starting to think about those things. Yeah, I think when, when it comes to MarTech, it's, uh, you really have to, to make sure that you have enough time to then start using it and implementing and following it up because it's so easy just to, to grab whatever tool is out there because you want to try it. But then if, if you don't really put the effort into learning how it can serve you the best, then it kind of just becomes a, another tool on the shelf that you never use. 
Um, and, and at least for us, whenever we choose, choose a new tool or, or uh, a new technology, it needs to provide us with some value. So either automate tasks or, or be able to, to help scaling up tasks, it, it, uh, it needs to prove its value to us. Yeah. I, think, I mean, from our side, uh, we see the, I think I agree with the, it's, it's about scaling things that we, uh, we, we can do manually. Um, but I see it really has um, to be able to, to scale. I mean, we, we, we still, uh, we all have small marketing teams comparing to the big, to giant companies, right? And we, we need to pretend we're big, pretend in the sense that we want to be big. So how do you get there? And I, I feel that um, at the stage we are and we need to compete for attention and get really the scale out there. It's a matter of like, um, I see the opposites uh, like being very creative and also very technological. So I think, I believe this mix is what we're looking for. Uh, so we're still not there, but it's like, how can you maximize creativity um, and maximize the, the technology leverage, let's say, right? Exactly. I think we'll find this right spot, then we can pretend to be giants. You bring up something interesting there. So for the audience, sort of something very relevant that I've noticed recently is, um, let's say five years ago or so, somebody would come into the organization and learning Excel was very important, which is still important, but for other reasons. Like nowadays, your ability to train your team members how Zapier works and how a REST API works is uh, one of the largest force multipliers I can think of. Your ability in MarTech not just to pick solutions, but also to uh, connect them without requiring a developer is, uh, is crucial, especially in early stage teams. Um, really take this connectivity into account because you're going to end up with 20, 30 pieces of software. And if you can't connect them and get them to work each to together automatically, it's not marketing tech, it's marketing slow. Um, so I'd say for the aud audience, really take that into account as well. Yeah, I mean, it can become a chaos. Just, just for, for our audience to understand uh, those not much into it, how much do you, kind of a rough number, do you invest in MarTech? Uh, can you give us like a percentage of your budget or something like that? Just Yeah, so I can kick off. Um... We we only invest uh, a couple of percent of uh, our total budget, so we invest very lightly in in Martech. There could be a good reason for that because um, we're very low touch. Um, so you know most of our investment is uh, automation and analytics, but we don't have to pay vast amounts for Salesforce because you know we don't we're not really sales driven. Um, so we we save a little bit there, I guess. Lucky but yeah, a couple, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So yeah. Um, with us, off the top of my head, fluctuates heavily because sometimes you have these one-off projects, sometimes you have ongoing subscriptions. Um, average is out to about 15% of the budget, um, but that's also because we've recently raised our A round, and I think there's some upfront costs in sort of the, the yeah. six to 12 months after that, uh, because in seed stage, you tend to be running on some pretty lean things. Uh, I, so my percentage might be a bit out of whack because of that. Yeah, for us, I, I, on the top of my head, I, I would say it's around five, between five to 10%, let's put it that way. Um, yeah. Really, yeah, depending, of course, on the one-off cost that you have, but on, on the subscription level, I would say it's between five to 10%. All right, so we can agree five, 10%, it's, it's, it's a number that you can look for when thinking about this, uh, this at this level. 
Um, let's go to the other opposite. So we talked about technology. Let's talk about people and the team um, and scaling the team, right? So I think for me, at least, it's a big leverage point, but also, of course, a complex one because people are people. Uh, what do you focus on? I see this drive for, oh, now that you have a funding round, like you were saying, Alex, uh, now you have to hire people that have done it before. Like you hire for experience, you hire for team fit, you hire for technical expertise. What, what are you looking for? I'm, I assume you mean chatbots by people. Um, <laughs> uh, these humans, no. Um, it's, this is so specific to geography, culture, product, segment. Um, I'd say, personally, I go for more for a soft skill angle. I think a lot of hard skills can be trained. And if you really need some heavy specialization, uh, start with a freelancer or an agency and get very involved to extract the knowledge. Um, at Series A, like I can assume in B, C, when you get larger, you bring your AdWords specialist in-house. It's a different story. But at this stage, having a curious person that's willing to work very hard and is, wants to learn a lot um, is more valuable than somebody that has 10 years of experience just because you will need this flexibility and this desire to adapt to your problems because it's all about problem solving. I can't think of anything I, I would not have been able to solve with a problem solver that I needed, let's say, a 10 years experienced brand marketer for or AdWords specialist or something like this. That is beneficial, but it would have provided me inflexibility and other points. So I go for flexibility, curiosity, and just the desire to succeed. And they need to have the potential to be smarter than me. And they all do, thank God. Um, my intern is crazy. Like My intern is going to be 10 times as smart as I am in two years. Yeah, I, so just to add to that, I, I completely agree with what you said. And it's exactly the way that uh, I've tried to do it here as well. When, when you're early, uh, early stage... Bringing in a lot of seniority also brings in a lot of potential problems. Senior people like to have big teams. They like to have big budgets and they like to have a big impact. The third thing is great, but the first two are, are um, they're complicated for an early stage company. So it's very hard to keep very, very senior people um, motivated at the early stage unless, you know, you're, you're giving them uh, a nice number of shares or something. So I agree, you know, bring, uh, when you're very early stage, bring in uh, enthusiastic people, people who are hungry to learn, um, but perhaps don't have all of the skills right now. Those people will grow with you and they'll likely become some of your most senior people later on. Um, and then later, when you're later stage, you want to start bringing in those, um, those specialists. So, um, and, and like Alex said, uh, you know, what you can't bring in in-house, you just, you just freelance. And when you're early stage, it's much lower risk as well. So. So it's, it's a good option, Germany. Uh, yeah, I, I totally agree with what you guys said. It's, it's the most important thing is to hire for attitude uh, and hire the, the kind of person that will fit in with your team and, and complement the skills that you have. It's a lot easier to get things done fast if you just get freelancers in the, in the beginning. Yeah. What I would say, though, sorry, I was just going to very quickly add the, the one bit of, you know, one of my biggest learnings is very early on, sit down, and write down very honestly everything you're not good at. And then make that your first hire. Make your first hire the person that completes you, you know, as a, as a manager. Uh, and be very honest with yourself about that. Um, in my case, you know, I, I wish that I hired uh, marketing operations very, very early on. I, I actually did it very late. And, uh, you know, it's just night and day. 
sometimes you get these hires and it's just completely night and day. So that would be my recommendation. Sorry, we'll go to interrupt. No, I mean, I, I'm, I'm disappointed with, with whoever set up this panel because I'm, I, I, I tend to agree with everything you say. Uh, so it becomes a little bit boring. But um, I, I'm actually a motivational uh, hire uh, recruiter. So I are hire for uh, motivation and, of course, um, uh, intelligence, but raw material, right? Uh, I think it's a raw material. And, and I, I think that the point you, you made, Sancha, uh, is very, very important. As you grow the team, is that you actually think about complements, right? Mm -hmm. And you think about, I, I, try to, I, I don't know much about uh, football, soccer, but I, I pretend I do. So I think about as a soccer team. Um, and I know I need players with different skills in different parts of the, uh, of the team. Uh, and, um, and my objective is not to play, is to be the coach, right? So, because I know, don't know how to play. Um, but yeah. um, but is this sense of complementarity and also team and with the flexibility of a football team, right? Uh, thank God that the, the, the World Cup didn't start yet, so we can have friendly discussions about that. Um, great. Now I'm going to start with Oliver because I, I don't want Oliver to say the agrees with you. I actually want to say that you agree with Oliver or not. Uh, so <laughs> Oliver, I, I want to jump into um, scaling geographies, right? Uh, of course, we all are playing in different countries, but do you think about expanding by country? And how do you think about that? Um, so we actually, yeah, we, we actually already operate in, in six countries. Um, and at Reeddesk, we've taken a, a, what we call like a hyper-local approach. So whenever we enter a new market, we actually want to go there and open an office first uh, to better understand the market. That being said, the product that we sell or the service that we sell, it is business critical. So it means that we really need to, to be close to the customer and understand the customer. So I understand that in that way, it wouldn't be necessarily the best fit for everybody. Um, but for us, that is, is what's worked the best. It's also a lot about knowing and understanding the market. And if you don't have the local people on the ground talking with the customers and actually facing the customers, then it's really difficult to know exactly what it is that the customers want. So uh, that's, that's what worked for us. So you have uh, a local marketing people in different countries? Oh, no, we actually we have sales offices. Marketing, okay. we have centralized in, in Helsinki in our, in our uh, Helsinki office. But you adapt any of the marketing to, to these countries? Yes, we, we try to hyper-localize everything we're doing. Um, Again, being, be, that being said, it, it's because for our customers, it's extremely important okay. that they feel that we are a local team and a local player. All right. Alex. Um, yeah, I think I'm repeating myself. It depends on the product, the culture, the geography, like EU versus US versus LATAM. So I had the what do you do in the US? <laughs> um, actually, no, if you mind, I'd prefer to talk about Africa because US... Okay. Uh, English speaking and we can read so much about it um, worked on Africa at PayPal for a short time and I think that there it, it, it became clear and working now at Finiata where we also prefer emerging markets it's you have like the western hemisphere and then you have 200 unique nodes which are the, uh, the rest of the countries and each of these nodes has very much little in common other than maybe an alphabet or uh, um, some remnants of a, of a previous empire and uh, if you want to go to market in these individual countries, you basically need complete new skill sets from the ground up, which means um, I agree with Oliver, like hyper 
um, uh, hyper-local approach in terms of skills, cultural understanding, etc. Uh, language as well. Like if we talk about the U.S., it's 50 countries, but it's the same language. Actually, more, it's maybe three languages now: like English, Spanish, and um, forgetting the third one, the third largest language. Uh, in the EU, you're talking about the EU languages, and then you're talking about all the um, immigrant languages as well. So, for example, in Germany, um, you have a massive Turkish population. So you don't have one language, you're operating in, in three different languages, and you get expats as well. It's, it's all about like, being super honest that you, quite frankly, are not part of the majority of the target audience because you're just from some culture and you live in a bubble because you're in a tech startup and you are a digital native and blah, blah, blah. Um, whereas your target audience is very often not, and they are so different that I would summarize the whole discussion as realizing you have no idea who you're trying to deal with, understanding this, and then solving from there is the way that we approach it. But uh, in practical terms, what, what does it mean? It means about marketing research, it's about people on the ground. Uh, how does the fact you're marketing uh, so I talk with some other companies and based on my own, from my experience, some channels can be centralized, some channels cannot be centralized. Um, you, want, you can have either a centralized marketing team that is uh, dedicated to countries or you'll have country managers that have their own local marketing teams. Um, we're a bit of a hybrid where the country managers can walk up to my marketing, marketing people and say, hey, uh, I have this idea, execute. Um, depends on the culture of the company, but... There are multiple operating modes, either hyper-centralized, hyper-localized, or somewhat hybrid somewhere in between. And this includes channel budget, um, also finance team, which is one of your main stakeholders, your product team. It, it, yeah, I don't know if that summarizes it. I find it hard to say practically because for every company, it's going to look very different. Yeah. Sansar, what's your take? Yeah, so um, Typeform is, so Typeform is based in Barcelona in Spain. It was founded here. Um, this is where our, our main office is, our HQ, but the, our focus audience, our target is the US. And the reason is because we're interested in two things. One, growth. So yes, we want to grow revenues, but two, we're also interested in creating a, uh, a world-renowned brand. And for us to do that, we, we want to dominate the US in, in that terms. So it poses challenges. It's got both pros and cons, as most things do. So there's the pros are the competitive advantage of uh, being in a place that you pay considerably less for office space, for talent even, you know, for perks and all of that kind of stuff. So, you know, the cost of 200 employees in Barcelona is much cheaper than 200 employees in Silicon Valley. Um, and then obviously it has the challenges, uh, you know, if we want to actually talk to our customers uh, if we want to run events or sponsor events, all of that kind of stuff, logistically, it's much more difficult. Uh, but what we need to do is make sure that we're always very well connected with our audience in the U.S. So we hire people who know that audience, that uh, appreciate that audience, and can constantly improve their knowledge of it. So that's our biggest challenge, the fact that we're not in the place uh, where we we focus most of our marketing. That said, we have just opened up a very small office in uh, in San Francisco. How much of your marketing team is out of uh, is not in Barcelona? One person is in San Francisco from the marketing team. Uh, we're 20 in total, more or less. Um, so yeah, we have one person out there. Uh, so actually, our San Francisco office is more connected to our uh, developer advocacy. 
um, sort of we're in the ecosystem. So that's where we actually have to have the one-to-one -one meetings. You know, we need to speak to people. We need to take people out for dinner, all of that kind of stuff. From a marketing point of view, we're very much an inbound marketing team. So, you know, we have really talented content people here, uh, really talented designers. So we don't need to be in San Francisco or anywhere else in the U.S. to to produce that, um, you know, to, to, to retain those those skill sets. All right. So, I mean, conversation is going well, but uh, fast. Uh, I want to think outside of marketing. So, marketing cannot scale alone, although we wish. Uh, we depend, or other other departments, other groups, other teams are depending on us. What needs to happen across the organization so that uh, there's no friction on the marketing, on scaling marketing? So, but let's define the purview of marketing because you can have marketing as sort of an operational manager that's managing an AdWords channel or you can have somebody that's doing product strategy, pricing strategy, the entire marketing and all customer touch points. So um, which ones would you like to cover? Your case. Okay, so that's uh, the, the latter one. Um, and what was the question again? Just so I make sure I answer first. So what other uh, teams need to scale uh, for marketing to scale without friction? So we're in an automation and AI-driven business. Uh, data science is the first one that needs to scale to be able to, to keep up with demand and automate quick enough. Um, the second one is uh, customer-facing roles, um, customer support, sales. And then in our case, because we're in the credit industry, we also have underwriters. So I'd say across the board, you're really looking at data science and your customer-facing roles to scale the fastest, and you're looking for underwriting to become more efficient over time. Um, but this is specific to fintech and to the credit business. From our perspective, it's we're, like I said, we're a, um, uh, mostly an inbound marketing team. So what needs to scale with us is uh, design. Uh, so our, we have a separate creative team. And um, data is also important, so that we're constantly getting better at tracking and attribution. Um, and customer success, because if we do our jobs well and we bring in enough people, then customer success needs to be there to, uh, to support the customers. Good problems to solve. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For, you, for us, uh, I would actually say that we're a very heavily sales-driven organization. So for marketing to scale, it means that our sales teams first have to scale and, and go into the market, uh, and then we kind of go in and, and follow the sales team afterwards. Um, so it is highly linked to the, the sales processes that we have and the sales teams that we have. Yeah. I think for us, uh, the, the, the challenge is, is not, it's more about the, the, the quality of the scaling. I mean, if two teams are focused on scaling and hiring new people and, and establishing new things, if they don't communicate enough, then can find uh, in that they, after some time they are in a different direction. Uh, I think that's most uh, most of the challenge. Like um, being could be marketing in sales, could be marketing in product. So there's, uh, I, I feel more and more constant need of um, a word that I'm a bit scared because it reminds me of my corporate years. But we need alignment and we need all these fluid uh, conversations that we all know what we're doing because sometimes mm -hmm. we're so focused on uh, each team is so focused on their I don't know what their plan. And if we don't keep looking uh, around, we probably are going in slightly different directions because over time that compounds and we're doing different things. So I think that's for us uh, what 
what I'm I'm concerned, or at least I, I need to be aware of, and, and to manage that with the other teams. Yeah, I think it's I think it's one of the biggest problems out there, probably for most of us, right? Having that alignment across the org. Uh, we've certainly had a lot of problems with that, and um, the closest we've got to solving it is being as cross-functional as as possible. So we used to have, you know, our traditional functions: marketing, customer success, uh, design was a separate function, and then product. Uh, and then we made the decision to to make cross-functional groups where they all work towards a, a common goal. And that way, resourcing is a lot easier because you understand what the shortfalls are in terms of resourcing to reach a particular goal. And you don't have to keep realigning with every uh, department because the problems become very clear within the self-sufficient groups. So for me, cross-functional is is the best way forward. But obviously, I'm kind of limited to my to my industry experience and uh but how's that work is for project-based uh cross-functional teams is it uh, a segment of the market uh, uh cross-functional teams how does that work so we've evolved it slightly um we started by having fixed cross-functional teams and we started by having those uh focused on a particular stage of the customer journey so in a cross-functional team you'd have marketers designers uh, people from customer success as well. And then the idea was to eventually bring product into that as well to be fully cross-functional. Uh, actually, we found that that fixed team structure didn't work so well. We just couldn't be very agile. We uh, we found that we had too many resources on some teams and not enough on others, but then it was never predictable predictable enough to, to move those resources permanently. So what helps is um, having people responsible for functional skill sets. So, you know, you have somebody responsible for bringing in really talented uh, paid marketers or brand marketers or, you know, content people. So they're responsible for that kind of expertise area. And then you use OKRs to decide what is the biggest problem we need to solve this quarter. And then you form cross-functional groups around those problems. And those groups could change slightly um, quarter on quarter. And you get different people working with each other. You get different perspectives, different skill sets. And generally, you, you tend to get a lot more done and less, less time needed for alignment. All right, interesting. All right, people, um, being conscious of time, uh, I want to just have uh, final words from, from everyone. Um, what, I don't know, what, what would be the thing that you would like people not to forget about the challenge of scaling marketing? Um, I'd say, I'd say sort of two things. The first one is uh, the list of things you're not going to do is longer than the list of things you're going to do. Um, it is so easy to get this torrent of ideas uh, without any productivity whatsoever. Um, and then this is uh, compounded by the fact that people say, oh, but uh, doing a marketing test is so simple. But then you look down the tracking and you look at the performance and then you realize that you can only do so much in a given set of time. Um, the second one I would say, uh, and this is what I'm a passionate believer about, is averages really don't matter. Uh, if you're not looking at everything broken down into deciles, into medians, into the statistics of it all, quite frankly, if you're a marketer and you don't know statistics, then you probably don't know what you're doing. Um, you should go and learn statistics before marketing. And then by now, you should probably go and learn computer science before marketing and then go and do marketing because your traditional marketing skills are not going to be that useful nowadays. They do have their use. I'm not saying they're useless, but um, this is a very different profession than I, what I conceived from 10 years ago. Interesting. Thank God I'm an engineer. 
<laughs> you're, you're probably going to hate my answer then, Alex. Um, <laughs> Finally, there's some disagreement. What do you mean it's later? No, we're all but, uh, but I don't disagree with that. And at least if you don't have those skills, make sure you have someone who, who does have those skills. Like I said, find the person or the people that, that can complete you. Not in a romantic sense, but in a marketing sense. Um, yeah, so I guess uh, what I've learned is that um, one of your biggest assets as you scale a marketing team and as the company scales around you and the complexity scales around you and as the number of stakeholders scales around you and the budgets get bigger and the investors get more demanding, uh, one of your biggest assets is, going, is having a good communicator who can not only communicate well to your audience and your users, but internally as well. You need to represent your team because first thing is everybody's a marketer. Everybody thinks they can do marketing better than you can. Um, and nobody understands the value you're adding. <laughs> so the best thing you can do is be a good storyteller and, and communicate uh, what you're doing, why you're doing it. And that way you'll free up a lot of your own time. When people buy into what you're doing through your storytelling, you'll find that you can just get on with stuff and people support you and people believe in you. So uh, I think as you scale, that's that's a, a critical um, skill that uh, any marketer needs to have. Yeah, I, I think those were, were some really good points. Uh, for me, I, I think the most important thing is that you, you have to be able to measure and show results. So whenever you want to, to be able to scale up your, your marketing or, or budget or, or whatever, you have to go in and, and be able to prove what you're doing, why you're doing, and how, how much you're impacting the actual business. So it's important to kind of be able to link what you're doing to the bottom line and, and that way show the value that you're creating. Um, on top of that, I think it's, it's very important to stay curious and, and interested uh, and make sure that you, you don't just sit down and, and feel that you actually achieved or accomplished what you set out to do, but you kind of constantly need to, to challenge yourself to, to do more um, and, and grow more. A lot of wise advice. Uh, what about you, Hugo? My take, uh, I'm not going to skip this one. So my take <laughs> is you know, what I'm, I'm telling always to the team, but, um, everything that we considered best practice is the average of the market. So best practice is what um, was invented five or 10 years ago. So you have to be careful not to be stuck into the best practice. Oh, this is how you do inbound marketing. This is how you do uh, ABM and all of that. Um, and so your role, if, if you're ambitious, if your company is ambitious, is to invent, to create the next best practice, right? And for that, you need to be ambitious. You need to be a good self-esteem to, to run through this uh, path and um, go and do it, right? So it, it's about figuring out what is the next best practice, what's the way to, to do things differently so you can be uh, cut through the clutter and have the results. So that's my, my take. Thank you very much, very everyone. I think very good. It was great. You time. did good. You all did good. Yeah, and you're, you're kind of on time, but no, it's, it's, it's excellent. We appreciate, first of all, we want to appreciate the audience, Facebook Live, and those of you that will be watching the recorded, uh, a special thank you to you and to all of our panelists today, and you, you go for leading the conversation. We want to invite everybody to visit our page, scaleupacademy.io, to learn more about us and what we do. And if you find these live shows valuable, we, we would ask that you hit that like button and share today's show. Tomorrow, we are going to bring you a special episode. This is the first ever for us. 
to bring you two shows in one week. Tomorrow, we'll talk about scaling up talent right here on Facebook Live at the same time. I'm your host, Randy Cantrell. Hope you uh, will join us tomorrow and have a great, great Monday and a great week, everybody. Thanks. Bye. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. Bye. Cheers. Bye.